This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So it's a pleasure to be here tonight and to talk about one of my favorite subjects, the role of music in dementia caregiving relationships. I have no dis- no conflicts of interest to report. And as mentioned before, this research is funded through the National Institute on Aging and has been supported additionally by the San Francisco Campus for Jewish Living and through a grant from the UCSF Osher Center for Integrative Medicine. And sponsors played no role in data collection, analysis, or preparation of the presentation. And because I also work for the VA, I need to be clear that I am not representing the VA today and the views expressed in this uh, presentation do not reflect position or policy of the Department of Veterans Affairs or the U.S. government. Because an hour is a long time to listen to a webinar, let's start with a little roadmap. In order to understand how music impacts quality of life in the context of dementia, it helps to know something about dementia. And from there then to um, look at the role of music in the context of dementia. And from there, the role of music in the context of daily life. And finally, my favorite topic, the role of music in relationships between people who are living with dementia and those people who care for them and about them. And because my point today is that music is about enthusiasm, not talent, we'll end with an example of individualized music in which I hope to display fearlessness rather than professional musicianship. So starting with dementia, this is an umbrella term. People often mistake it for a diagnosis, but it is not. It's just a description of cognitive impairment in two domains, by which I mean it involves memory issues plus one other cognitive function. So it could be impairment of judgment, object recognition. I no longer know this is a pen. Space-time awareness. I'm having trouble remembering what century it is or who the president is. And it's severe enough that it interferes with regular life. And in terms of regular life, in medicine, we often talk about activities of daily living or ADLs. And these are the things you have to do just to get up and running every morning. Dressing yourself, bathing, feeding, transferring from your bed to a wheelchair, from your bed to walking. And we also think in terms of instrumental activities of daily living or IADLs. And these are those things that you have to be able to do in order to stay independently in your home, like paying your bills, buying your groceries and managing your medications. And most importantly of all, it is not due to another cause because other issues like dementia, like depression or delirium are life-threatening and really require immediate intervention. Whereas with dementia, you're looking at a longer term illness and the interventions are going to be done over the span of months and years. And in the case of Alzheimer's disease, decades. There are over 50 causes of dementia. The most common um, and well-known are Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia and combinations of these two known as mixed dementia and Lewy body dementia, which sits on a spectrum alongside Parkinson's disease dementia. In the United States, we need to understand the significance of this problem. There are 6 million people carrying this diagnosis, or this carrying diagnoses that result in dementia. And the majority of people living in nursing homes have dementia. However, 
the majority of people who are living with dementia are not in nursing homes. They live at home and most of them have a care partner, but up to a third of them live alone. And I would encourage you all to look at the website link on the bottom of this screen. Um, the Alzheimer's Association comes up with a facts and figures every year. And this year, the 2021 facts and figures are focused entirely on healthcare disparities because there are significant healthcare disparities that cut across racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic lines. And I'm gonna pause here for a moment because webinars are not interactive. I can't lead a sing-along. We can't all sing together like we normally can, but we can converse in the chat function. And so let's use it. So for our first chat, I'd like you to put down if there's someone in your life with dementia and share something about this. You don't need to name names, just describe a circumstance. For example, I might put in the chat, my grandma had dementia. And if you look at your chat, you'll see that's exactly what I'm putting in right now. And in my grandma's case, my mom made a recording of her favorite songs and the other women at the nursing home loved it so much that she was asked for multiple copies. As I said before, please share something about someone in your life. Let's move on to our next topic. Music is unusual. When we think about dementia, many of us think about forgetting, losing things. And music isn't like that. Music is also a descriptor. Music encompasses many skills. It's not just listening to a song on an iPod or a recording. It's singing, it's dancing, it's thinking about past performances, it's going to performances. It's learning new songs and new music and creating it yourself. And in the context of dementia, we find that even when someone can't tell you what they had for breakfast or can't really remember what your name is, they can remember familiar songs. They can continue to play musical instruments. They can learn new songs and they can compose songs together. And we'll take a little time on each of these topics to show you how this operationalizes and to play some video footage. Most importantly, we find that no matter how severe dementia progresses, um, we can still enjoy musical experiences together. So remembering familiar songs is the music skill that has the, the greatest evidence base. Um, professional caregivers have known about this for years and people have been singing in nursing homes for decades. Um, music and health sciences researchers have done observational studies. Music therapists have done intervention studies and neuroimaging st researchers have been working on mapping musical memory. And to bring our, to bring our, um, our audience into our conversation, I'm not the only person, am I? We have someone else sharing about a parent with dementia who loved playing piano. And not surprisingly, people don't love any music. They, they love individualized music, preferred music. And this, the observational studies show much better outcomes um, when people get to have the music they love the most. And I think you can imagine if you're in a nursing home and it's COVID and you're lonely and you can't see your family, it's okay to listen to what's on the radio, but wow, if you can listen to your favorite music, that might be cheering. 
We know that singing together helps with verbal communication in a variety of neuro neurodegenerative diseases. It helps the person with hypophonia, with a very low voice to speak louder in Parkinson's. It helps folks with stroke to speak and it helps folks with dementia to engage in meaningful conversation. We know that if you sing with someone in the morning while you're trying to get them to go shower, you're going to have much more luck than if you're talking to them. And a group of nursing uh, researchers in Sweden have brilliant video footage showing how someone who's normally terrified of getting in the shower uh, is playful and enjoys their time with their care caregiver when the caregiver is singing rather than um, rather than talking to them all the time. And in terms of those outcomes I measure, mentioned earlier, the outcomes that we know about best in, are in nursing homes. And we find that when uh, people have ready access to preferred music, they need fewer antidepressants and antipsychotic medications, which raises the important question, did they need them in the first place or were they simply bored and lonely and in need of meaning in their lives? So I would like you to think for a moment about what individualized music means in your life. And if you go to the chat, I'll tell you what mine is. So share one of your favorite pieces of music, if you would, and, and think about a few things. Why do you like it? What does it make you think of? What were you doing the last time you heard it? And typical ethnomusicologist, I don't have a favorite song. I love the song we can sing together. And I love it because we sing together. And it makes me think of singing while doing the dishes with my mom. And the last time that we did this, it was with a group of fellows on a Zoom call. And it was awful because of the echo on Zoom. And that's why we won't be doing it today. We have someone who likes a waltz by Strauss, and it makes me wonder about dancing versus concert going. And someone writes that waltzes make them want to get up and dance. And if you would, because nobody can see you, get up, move around a little bit. Think about the last time you heard your favorite song. And as mentioned, I'll play one of my own flute examples at the end, but you've got to understand I haven't been a competent flute player in 30 years. I'm just trying to recapture the music the way I'm asking you to. So let's talk for a moment about neuroscience. I am not a neuroscientist. I live with a neuroimaging researcher. It is not the same thing as being one. But this is medical school. So let's be medical students for a moment. I'm going to assume that none of you have seen one of these slices before. And I'll walk you through on a very basic plain English level. This is the left hemisphere of your brain. If you look at my picture for a moment, instead of that slide, it's the left half of your brain. And this image on the right that's got the red ditzel in it, that's the view from the inside. If we took my brain and we opened it up, we'd be looking right there. And the side on the outside, on the other side that has all of the, the ripples, that's this left outer part of the brain. So you're seeing the brain from two sides. And the reason we're only seeing one side of the brain is because in this study, the left and right hemispheres functioned very much the same, which is unusual in itself. But back to the point, Jacobson and colleagues did this very clever study in healthy 28-year-olds where they mapped out 
familiar music and they mapped out unfamiliar music and they mapped out all kinds of language uh, of different musical processing. And they found that this little area, what we call the, the, um, the pre-supplementary motor cortex, it really lights up when people are listening to a song they know well. So once they figured out their musical re region of interest, they stopped putting 28 year olds in the magnet and they went to a group of older adults, older than 65, and they age matched a healthy cohort and a cohort that had Alzheimer's. And they did the same kind of tests and they had them listen to familiar music. This was in, in a German speaking country. These were largely German folk tunes and classical tunes and things that, that everyone recognized. And then they compared a few things. First, they looked at atrophy. Did this part of the brain, and if you can see my cursor here, I'll try and hover over it. Did this part of the brain shrink in Alzheimer's relative to normal? And they found that actually, no, it was pretty normal sized. Then they looked at metabolism. Okay, well, the, well, the side, that part of the brain is the same size, but is it alive? Is it actually taking up sugar and functioning like normal brain tissue? And again, we look at that region and we see all this nice blue and purple suggesting that it's very similar, whether you have dementia or you don't. And in contrast, out here in the temporal region where we, we know there's a lot of atrophy, we would expect this to be the color red. And sure enough, it is, you know, out, out there in the areas that are very much affected by Alzheimer's. Um, we do see the atrophy. So it's not like these were unusual brains. And then they looked at, at something that kind of surprised me. They, they looked at amyloid burden. I don't know how much you're reading about tau proteins and amyloid plaques, um, but these have been a little puzzling for a long time because we often see them in folks who don't have severe dementia and they're not always concordant with the severity of the dementia. And Sure enough, there, there was more amyloid burden in the people with dementia. You see how, how the entire graph shifts out to the right, um, but not enough to impair musical ability. So in terms of remembering familiar music, I don't know how many neuros, neuroscientists and neuroimagers there are in this audience, but I suspect most of us have looked at the internet. And if, if you do, you may have seen this image down here at the bottom of Henry and his um, recreation therapist putting on a headphone with his favorite songs. It's from a documentary called Alive Inside. And this business of putting iPods in every nursing home for every person who lived with dementia, um, that, was, that was social worker Dan Cohen's dream. And it has really grown. And there are now music and memory programs all over the country. And importantly, they've been studied. So I'd like to share a video now so that you don't have to listen to me the whole time. Let me share a video from my colleague, Deb Bakurgian and her group at UC Davis, where they took the Music and Memory Project and they studied it. And I particularly want you to listen to the results of the study and to the woman who's actually engaging in it with her own dementia. As a little child, oh my gosh, 
I remember. When mom was home, the record player was going. The holidays, we had music. And if we were in a store and her music came on that she liked, she would dance in the store. Everyone thought Ruth is perfect for this program. She has a tendency to withdraw sometimes. I'll bring her her iPod and she usually starts singing, she starts dancing. Everyone notices. I've walked in and, I, and I've seen mom and, and she'll be in a state, you know, of just not there. They put the music on her and she snaps right back. We build these playlists with music that played at their wedding, with lullabies they sang to their babies, with songs they danced to at the high school gym. And they go there. Older adults with dementia who get a personalized music program do better. They don't need as much medication. But it's more than just the medication. It's their quality of life. I am here because my memory is bad. And we need to adjust the headphones. But when the music starts, I can remember the time when the music was, when I sung it. If I'm down, it brings me up. And if I'm up, I go up higher. <laughs> and if I'm up, I go up higher. I think this summarizes what a lot of us feel when we listen to our favorite songs. And there's no reason why we should think that would change just because one part of our neural processing is a little different. These experiences can be very powerful, and we don't have time to unpack them in a webinar, but we could share a little bit in the breakout room. And so my question now would be, have you ever had an experience like Ruth's? Have you ever had an experience like this? And where was it? Was it with someone in your family? Was it on watching a YouTube video about Henry? Was it watching the Disney Pixar movie Coco? And if you can, try to remember, what was the song? So I want to make sure to share that um, we're also hearing about Beethoven's 7th and how remarkable it was to have a composer continuing to carry on at, despite hearing loss. So I mentioned before that people who are living with dementia can learn new music. And I, I certainly saw, I've certainly seen this over the years, this Image to the right is a woman playing the ve harp. And if you look closely, you'll see a white piece of paper with black dots behind it. This is actually the notation. And so to play the instrument, you simply pluck wherever there is a black dot. And you pluck it more or less rapidly, depending on what it looks like. And um, uh, my colleague, Dr. Harto, has been teaching people to play the ve harp for years now. It's really an incredible amount of fun. Um, people can learn vocal music. When I was working at what was then known as the Jewish Home, uh, we had a whole group of people who loved listening to Michael Jackson. And I assure you, they never listened to Michael Jackson when they were little because what he wasn't born yet. Um, and so it can even happen when somebody has severely impaired verbal memory. Baird and colleagues have given a uh, very clearly delineated case study of a, a person who had severely impaired verbal memory, but intact pitch and rhythm perception and auditory working memory. And if you listen, you'll hear the song that she learned to sing along with. 
la 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 Heads up, this is not a difficult song. La 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 So we hear it once. Now we're gonna hear it again. La 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 Then it changes. And people can learn new music that they have written themselves. When I first started studying this phenomenon, I was pulled aside by a doctor who says, I I guess I always understood that people could still write music when they had cognitive impairment, but it never occurred to me that they would remember it. And maybe the most famous example of this is the late, great Glenn Campbell, the rhinestone cowboy, whose last song, Not Gonna Miss You, was co-written with Julian Raymond and nominated for an Emmy Award during his final tour, um, during which he was very open about his dementia. Judith Kate Friedman has been doing songwriting with folks who are not professional musicians. She's been working with men and women in communities, boys and girls, intergenerational groups in nursing homes, in adult day health centers, and in community workshops. Um, And I'd like to play one of the songs that was written at the Jewish home. And this time, again, I'd like you to pay attention to the person who wrote the music and how he is able to remember when he hears it. Remember, that was the first thing you said. I don't know if I can contribute any lyrics oh, except for yes, my... Oh, yes, yes. Ashena Madel is looking for her dreidel. Is it Hanukkah? Ashena Madel is looking for her dreidel. Is it Hanukkah? It's Hanukkah tonight. A boy named Mendel is lighting the first candle. Is it Hanukkah? It's Hanukkah. Oh, you reminded me. You reminded me. He didn't recognize her when he first saw her, but he remembered the song and he was reminded of the second version or the second verse. So back to our roadmap, because this is a lot of information. Knowing a little something about dementia and the fact that people can remember all kinds of musical skills in the context of cognitive impairment, I'd like to take a moment to bring us back to music in daily life for all of us. I think there are a few key points that we really need to be attentive to. The first is that music is personal and cultural and social. Even though we may choose to listen to music alone with our headphones, somebody else made it. Or if we're playing by ourselves, the music that we wrote, we listened to other people's music first and we played other people's music first before we wrote our own. And to break open our ideas about music, Up until now, we've really been talking about music as sound, 
But Alan Merriam, uh, back in the 60s, when he came up with this idea of an anthropology of music, said Mus music is not just the sound. Music includes the behavior associated with music engagement. This is the dancing with the waltz. This is the kneeling in the congregation. This is the belief system that goes along with the words that we are singing. And music also includes the concepts and ideas and attitudes underlying music engagement. And these things can't be separated. We feel how we feel, we believe what we believe, and we do what we do simultaneously. So I'd like you to just take a moment to think about the reasons why we might be able to remember music. These are whole body events. They go from our brains to our toes. They go from our fingertips to our hearts. Now in the US, um, there are a few things that are, that are, I wouldn't say unique to the US, but there are a few generalizations that I think we can make, right? The first is obvious. Our population is highly diverse. We're a group of people who chose to come to the US at some point, who were forcibly abducted and enslaved and dragged to the US, and members of First Nations who lived here long before anybody was emigrating from Europe or Asia or Africa. And because of this, we have a variety of music cultures going on. And, and none of us really live in a vacuum, right? We each participate in many of the music cultures um, from our communities and from our personal histories. And when we go to special events like weddings and graduations of our neighbors and our friends, we may encounter musics that are very different from those we grew up with as kids or things that are very much the same. I hate to make this third generalization, but in the US there really is more of a consumer culture uh, with music than there, than there is in, in some places. Um, by which I mean that, you know, so to pick on my own heritage in, in Sweden for decades, students all learned the same core group of folk songs in their schools. So it's not surprising that the grandparents and the aunties and the uncles in the nursing homes were responding when the care partners were singing those songs because they'd been learning them their whole lives and they'd been performing them their whole lives. Whereas in the US, we're a little more likely to, to listen to it or to sing along in the car, but to assume that we're not musicians. And I'd like us to gently challenge this and remember that when we're singing in the car, we are the musicians. And I also want to introduce this concept of genre, which is the type of music you might listen to. And so when we think in terms of genre, um, for example, you've heard me mention that I like classical music. If you were listening ahead of time, you discovered that I like R&B, rhythm and blues. You know that I play flute, but do you know that I also play the mbira from Zimbabwe and that I love Shona music? So what are the types of music that you listen to? And while you're thinking about this, let's move on to some newer research. Singing for the brain. How many of you have heard about singing for the brain? This is a, a really neat community 
outreach program done through the Alzheimer's Association in the US and the Alzheimer's Society in the UK. Um, and it brings together the people living with dementia and their care partners. So they sing together in a circle with a facilitator. And more recently, there've been a number of community choirs that again, bring together someone living with dementia, their primary care partner. In this case, in a formal choir with rehearsals and performances and a choir director. Um, and unlike the Alzheimer's Association, these choirs are generally happening outside of, of the uh, not-for-profits. So Voices in Motion is um, done out of the University of Victoria in, uh, in Canada. The Unforgettables uh, sing in New York City. And um, there are numerous benefits. Uh, Mary Middleman has shown through the Unforgettables and Deborah Sheets and her colleagues have shown through Voices in Motion that there's increased social engagement. There are improvements in mood, improvements in relationships and generation of these larger support networks. Um, we don't have the studies out, but I've, I've been talking with both of them about how they've adapted these choirs in the context of COVID, and they've moved to virtual platforms. We can't sing together live, but we can sing one track, and that can be pulled together with other tracks and a virtual performance created. And we can create groups in which we can watch the performance together and talk together and um, both of them have found that the, the choirs are going like gangbusters. I'm hearing the same thing from the Community Music Center here in San Francisco, uh, which originally served as a partner in the Community of Voices randomized clinical trial for uh, community dwelling older adults without dementia. In the nursing home, um, on a very, very highly respected, highly functioning end-stage dementia unit, with very low staff turnover and very happy people living there and family members. Um, when we did an in-depth ethnographic study of the unit, we found that music was integral to daily life. There was background music at the nursing station. People who are really into music might be sitting and listening to their music with speakers so that nearby folks could listen to. Um, individual staff and family and visiting musicians would sing individually, one-on-one, -on -one, and visiting musicians would put on concerts. And we found this concept of interprofessional reciprocity. I'm the nursing assistant. I help change you and get you clean. And while we're doing this, we're listening to your favorite jazz station and you smile back at me. And we've each given each other a gift or someone doesn't speak all year and I go up and start singing in Passover. And she sings back to me, I've received a gift as well. And so in our professional relationships, we find new ways in which the person living with dementia can give back. At the other end of the spectrum, We've learned that you can bring college students together with older adults who have dementia and build really interesting and meaningful relationships. My colleague, Jenny Gubner, who's now at University of Arizona, brought pairs of students and people living with dementia together when she was teaching at Indiana University. And she gave the students two tasks. 
The first was they had to build an individualized song playlist through the Music and Memory project, uh, program. And they had to create short documentary films of the process. So I want you to picture one student is talking with a person who has the cognitive impairment and they're figuring out the favorite songs. The other student is back there filming it. And then they switch off. And the students love the course. At the end of the course, they gave a little film viewing for the community. The community loved the course. Everyone loved the course. But what we didn't realize was how important this would be to the students. To this day, and we're now three, almost four years out, 56%, the majority of the students remain engaged in dementia care. Um, they're working in long-term care facilities. One has started a nonprofit. Um, and several simply maintain their relationships with the person they met during their undergrad class. Anybody wanna see what these documentary films look like? So we have one of our undergrads here, we have one of our participants here, and this is the video that they came up with, or piece of it. I sang it one time uh, with Tommy Dorsey. Yeah, it's really cool. My dad didn't really want me to do it because he felt that the education was important. So then I, I stopped. And, and Tommy, Tommy Darcy knew that. I mean, that wasn't a problem or anything like that. But I, but I used to sing all the time. I was in Terry Decker there. And so was I, but we you didn't know each other no, then. Because I'm a lot older than she said, how are you? You don't want to tell? <laughs> well, not very well. Well, I'm 99. 99? You don't look 99. No, well, thanks. No, I'm, I'm, I I'm have a little take. younger. I don't know how long we met. I don't know how long we met. 10? Probably. 10, 12 years? They've known each other a few months. They became best friends because they're interior decorators and they live in the same assisted living. What I want to draw your attention to right now before they start singing together is how totally normal this moment is. Two college students are talking to two women old enough to be their grandparents and everyone is having a good time. We're not asking people what day of the week it is or what they had for breakfast. We're asking them about the things that, that they can answer. And the end result is a beautiful set of conversations. And now let's hear some of the music. Are we supposed to remember all these little things? Yeah, you're fine. Strumming on the old window. Feet got Feet so I recently finished a, a, an ethnographic study of 21 dyads. It wasn't longitudinal. We only got to meet each dyad about three times each. Um, and we're now embarking on a longitudinal study to see how things change over time. But even in those three short visits, even in just six hours, we learned a few things. 
Give me just a moment to turn off the original sound so I don't echo. We found either people listen to music every single day or almost every single day, or they almost never listen to music. It was, it was very surprising. We expected that some people would listen to music once a week and some people would listen now and then, but that was not the case. And in the homes where people engaged in music, listening, singing, performing, um, there were a few common features. The care partner had nursing or dementia care professional training or personal experience. So it didn't matter what somebody's cultural or ethnic or whatever background was, it mattered what their training and experience was. Even in families that didn't have a lot of professional training, if there was a strong, ham strong history of family music making, again, that strong history of daily family music making just continued. Music occurred every day where there were adequate support networks and where there was adequate technology. And I'd just like to take a moment now to acknowledge the extraordinary barriers that we have. Music should be really accessible. It used to be that we just turned on the radio. Um, but now, what, where's the radio? right? We're listening to streaming devices. You just got a Spotify playlist in the, um, in the chat function of a Zoom that we're doing virtually. The technology has really posed both opportunities and barriers. And in homes where people had the technology they needed, whether it was a CD player and a set of CDs or a streaming device on a smartphone or a computer, if they had what they needed, they listened to the music. In contrast, some, phones, some families had always been involved in music one way or another. They went to concerts, they sang in a choir, um, but they weren't doing any of it now. They were singing at church services and now they're no longer going to church. But the real reason it seemed to disappear was because, uh, well, I wouldn't say because, this does not show association, but we found common features. The care partner had little or no formal nursing or dementia care training or experience. The music experiences were not family music making. It's not, I sing with my family every night when we do the dishes. It's, I go to a concert or I listen to my stereo in my room. And so those families had no history of family music making to, to continue with. It really happened where there were inadequate care support networks. As one participant said, you know, this is not where we are. We're just trying to manage her care and to get her stronger after a hospital stay. And, and repeatedly, we saw barriers due to technology. We saw Bluetooth connections that had become disconnected. We saw a Victrola with dust on it. We saw LPs in the corner because the turntable no longer worked. And we found people who really listened to music in the car and now they could no longer go for a ride. Now, we're ethnomusicologists in this group and we're actually applied ethnomusicologists, which means we're hopeless meddlers, right? We, we, if someone doesn't have the music, we help them overcome the barrier. If they wanna listen to Willie Nelson, we're, we're gonna put it on the, we're gonna put it on their smartphone, our smartphone, the laptop, and we found that 
all of the dyads enjoyed the musicking. There was only one person who, who wasn't sure about it. And there were a few people who could no longer speak. And we had to ask their care partners who said, no, no, they seem to be enjoying this. Um, and all of them, the folks who were engaging in music every day, the folks who had disengaged, when they were listening, just like you saw with Honey and Zeta, people reflected on life experience. They um, enjoyed the fact that the person with dementia sometimes remembered the song that the care partner did not. One care partner was floored when the person who was living with dementia started singing in a foreign language. And he said, how on earth do you know that? You don't even speak that language. And she said, oh, our sister taught me. Next thing you know, they're on the phone and the care partner is learning something that he'd never known. And the sister is remembering something that she'd forgotten. And when we ask the, the care partners in particular what this experience is like, they tell us repeatedly that it's, it's lovely. It's, it's not just fun, it's comforting. It normalizes the relationship. And it, and it makes a break from the normal daily enormous work of, of caregiving for someone who needs help with all of those activities of daily living, like feeding and transferring and going to the bathroom. And in the families who lost uh, all engagement in music, we saw a fair bit of interest in overcoming the technology barriers. And this is why the longitudinal study is so important, because it's one thing to say, oh, yeah, I think I'll get a turntable. It's quite another to go to Best Buy and pick it up. And it's quite another to sit down and listen to your LPs on it. Um, so we want to work with dyads over, over a couple of years and see what changes, what gets better, uh, what works, what doesn't. So this has been a very big, very fast romp through a widely divergent literature, going from brain science to anthropology. Um, but let's just reflect for a moment on the key points. People living with dementia can retain their music skills they can continue to remember and enjoy music. And that music engagement can be deeply meaningful for both the people living with dementia and for those who care about them and for them, the people I've been referring to as their care partners. And so what I'd like us to do is take a moment and try it out. Sing with someone you care about. Listen to a song together. Turn on the radio in the car. Hum along ask, find out one another's song history. A music professor who's very dear to me um, developed delirium once. And afterwards, um, I asked him, you know, music, music can be very reorienting in delirium. What, what would you like us to play if you get sick again? And this person who I'd known for so long did not give me the song I would have guessed. And I think there's a teaching point in here. We don't really know what people's favorite music is. We don't ask very often. And so I'd encourage you to try it out now. Try it out with everyone you love. Um, it's a lot of fun. And don't worry about whether you can sing well or poorly. Don't worry about being in or out of tune. Um, 
And let me show you uh, a little a little trip down memory lane that I've taken recently um, to give you a sense of what this can look like. So let's, now you're gonna all know that I'm 52 years old because let's go back 40 years ago. I'm taking piano lessons, but I, I really think of myself as a flutist. And my piano teacher says, oh, come play at church with me on, on one of these Sundays. Let's play this piece. So she gives me this piece. It's called Siciliano. I don't know. It's by, I don't know. I play it. I'm in middle school. They were very forgiving because, you know, middle school flute players were a little squeaky. Fast forward a decade. In college, I ended up majoring in music, but not music performance. I majored in music history and theory, but I was still going to do a senior recital. And my flute teacher said, oh, oh, you know, you love Bach. You're doing your senior thesis on Bach. You should play the Bach Sonata in E-flat major. How cool. Haven't played it. I get to the second movement. Guess what? It's the Siciliano. Now, when I'm 23, I start med school. And I let's be clear, I stopped playing flute. There's no time. While I was working on the project at the Jewish home, I was playing in the Klezmer band, which was enormously fun. Um, but that was a long time ago. And then COVID hits, right? And I don't know about you, but when I'm stuck home all day, I, I get a little squirrely and I need something to do. And so at the age of 52, I decided that, okay, I'm going to start playing flute again. This is a rhetorical question. What song do you think I started with? J.S. Box Siciliano, or J.S. Box Flute Sonata in E-flat major, uh, the Siciliano And I do not pretend to be a professional flutist, but I do take great pride in my enthusiasm. So let me play a little bit of it for you. Not the whole sonata, just a couple minutes to get it in your ears before we go to question and answer. turn off my ringer while I do this.
And with that, I would like to acknowledge the fact that nobody works in a vacuum. We all have many relationships and I have many, many people to thank for supporting my uh, crazy decision to leave medical direction and become a researcher in music and dementia caregiving relationships. And I would really like to thank all of you for taking the time on a Thursday night uh, to, to spend a little time with me. And with that, I think we are at the top of the hour. And so I will open up to question and answer. Thank you so much, Teresa. <laughs> um, I'm wondering how that felt for you to play. Awkward. Awkward. <laughs> this is supposed to be a sing-along. <laughs> Selena, you want to do an experiment with me so they understand why we can't do a sing-along? Okay. <laughs> do you know the song, Row, Row, Row Your Boat? Yes. Okay. I'll start off and you try and do the second part. You ready? Row, row, row your boat. Gently down the stream. Oh, where do you come in? <laughs> I know. How about you start? You start yeah, rowing boat. <laughs> and then we'll have Dawn and Joey tell us what it sounds like. Row, row, row your boat gently. Row, row, row your what? <laughs> right. There's this little obnoxious time lag in Zoom, and it's it's ruining my life. It's ruining the lives of all the musicians who play in groups. And now, thank goodness, if you're vaccinated, you can meet outdoors um, because finally there's a chance to make music again. And so I'm hoping that we're going to see more group music in parks as we move into summer weather and more people vaccinated. I mean, it really does speak to the multimodal and just kind of a sense of mindfulness that comes with music, just bringing everything, all the pieces back together and um, bring you into the present moment. That is absolutely true. Can I ask, um, what are some of the genres of music that you like? I like flamenco guitar. Like I like guitar, you know, even like seventies, because I think my father listened to a lot of Peter, Paul and Mary. And so there's something um, about that tone and Nat King Cole as well. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah. I tried to pick up guitar when my son was taking lessons. Remember what I said? It's not about talent. It's about enthusiasm. And man, I was enthusiastic. <laughs> and it reminds us of authenticity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is really what it's about. There are so many stressors about it around us. And there are so many stressors in dementia caregiving. And being able to take a moment of mindfulness and a moment of respite and to be creative, whether it's listening or singing along or dancing or moving, there are just so many ways that we can engage and just make things a little better for a few minutes. Is there research on people watching, you know, these lovely connections as well? Like what happens to their brain and their feeling? Oh, that's an interesting question. So not the people who are actually engaged in the activity, but the people around them. There is one study that was done in nursing homes in, I want to say Japan and the US, and now it's going to make me crazy not to be able to pull up the study off the top of my head. But they were studying a concert series in nursing homes. And one of the findings was just that it wasn't only wonderful for the 
the audience members who had dementia. Dementia, it was wonderful for the musicians. It was wonderful for everybody in the room. Um, and certainly that was my experience. Um, you know, I've been working in nursing homes since 2005. And when I was doing the longitudinal study, um, I, I noticed quickly how staff members would cluster whenever there was a sing-along. Part of it is because they weren't running themselves ragged with people asking them for stuff because people were bored and lonely and wanted something meaningful. So part of it was that they had a moment of respite themselves. But I think when, when I talked to other staff members, they were simply drawn, drawn to the sound, drawn to the experience. Um, I used to think it was wonderful on the Wandering Dementia Unit when Judith Kate Friedman would come and sing this, this song, you take me as I am, you take me as I am, just being with you is enough for me. It's, it's written by the folks on that Wandering Dementia Unit. And every time she came back and sang it, long after the original composers were, were gone, the, the nursing staff would sing along the certified nursing assistants all knew the song and everyone cracked up at the line. There's no weeping about housekeeping. <laughs> we like the food here and I'm picky. It's clear. We all like variety and, and these little inside jokes, this, this use of music in this case as a gift. Hmm. Um, I don't know if you would call that the kind of neurological study that you're asking about, but there was clearly and interprofessional reciprocity happening. The people on the unit had chosen to write their first song as a thank you, right? You take me as I am. That's to the nursing assistants who meet them where they are every day. And the nursing assistants understood this and learned the song and loved the song. And even when Judith Kate wasn't around, would play the recording. I mean, even while you're leading me through this guided imagery of it, you know, I get this like, oh, my heart can't take it anymore. It's so um, just so touching. And um, we have a couple of questions in the Q&A. So, so uh, the first question is, are there resources or websites that assist in the process of learning what genres people enjoy? That is a great question. There ought to be. Um, if you go to the Music and Memory website, it's just musicandmemory.org, they have a lot of resources. Um, they're more designed towards how you build a playlist um, than in learning the process, than in the process of learning what someone enjoys. There's this funny phenomenon I find that the less the Music and Memory advocates are like identifying as like professional musicians. We have formal degrees and all this. The more they say, oh, it's easy. You just ask them what they like and you try things and you go through it. Um, and then when you talk to folks who have formal training like the music therapists, they will tell you, oh, there are landmines in there. You can actually hit something very triggering or traumatizing. Um, and I think that the truth is somewhere in the middle. There isn't a, a great way to do it. Um, except to say that if you have a way to make a playlist, you can start by asking. And if you can't ask the person who has dementia, you can ask their loved ones and realize that sometimes as you're playing it, it will trigger memories. And when in doubt, if you're dealing with a 90 year old or older, 
um, look for something written 10 years before they were born. Because mm -hmm. in the age groups that grew up with synchronous music, right, where you listen to what was popular now or what your parents listened to what was on the radio, um, that music that they heard as little tiny kids, the music their parents loved, really sticks. Um, yeah, a lot of it is everyone I talk to, unless you want to go get formal training in music therapy, it's a lot of trial and error. Thank you. Um, what about background music, especially in places like long-term care facilities? Are there ways institutions are rethinking how to use music in these yes. settings? Yeah, Murray's concept of soundscapes is back, it is Old. It's been around since the 70s and different communities take different approaches to the intentional use of background music. Um, most of the handful of nursing homes that I have a great deal of experience with, um, largely what's being played at the nurse's station is what the staff want to listen to. And what's played in the room of the person living there is what that person or their family has identified as what they like. Um, but it's tricky. It's really tricky. People are really busy and the electronic medical records mean everyone's documenting when they'd rather be holding someone's hand or giving them a cup of tea or painting their nails, you know? Um, but, but yes, there are, it, certainly in that end stage unit that's an exemplar unit, um, background music is very intentional mm -hmm. and and a lot of the decisions are made based on on response you put on the music and someone turns their head away you turn off the music you turn on the music and someone looks at you and brightens up you keep it going based on very much assessment too like uh individualized headphones and yeah the headphones are wonderful especially headphones with a splitter mm -hmm. uh, because that way you can enjoy music together without irritating your roommate so I can go visit my loved one or my loved one can come visit me and we can listen to the same song together and my roommate can get a nap. Um, oh, I love the third question. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I know. Yes. Karaoke is fabulous because if you don't have a visiting musician and your staff can't really, I mean, like I was in a klezmer band, right? We went around and serenaded people and they sang along. But, but if I'm working as a doctor, I can't be mucking around with a flute and music and a stand, but I can put video key on the TV, right? And if someone can still read, they can see the words at the bottom. And if they can't still read, they can sing along and my hands are free. So if someone looks like they're gonna fall, I can catch them. So yeah, karaoke, uh, particularly in the form of video key recordings is, is really popular when it's done. It's gotta be the right track. 1960s music, <laughs> probably gonna work for, for some folks, but not for others. Any other questions? You can put them in the chat or q and I'll say. <laughs> I, I would say there are uh, a few resources to think about. There's the Music and Memory website, um, and that there's the Alzheimer's Association, you know, people avoid it 
because they don't have Alzheimer's. It doesn't matter. If I have Huntington's, if I have Lewy body, if I have frontotemporal dementia, the Alzheimer's Association is there to help. And the Family Caregiver Alliance is there to help. And they have all kinds of support groups. The Alzheimer's Associations in particular have all kinds of support groups. And these have all gone virtual with Zoom. And I don't think they're going to go back because um, our, our care partners are pretty clear that man, if I don't have to get somebody dressed and get them out of the house, this is a lot more fun for us. Um, oh, this last question's impossible. If you had to pick a few songs that you see showing up most often, is there a top 10? Yeah, this gets back to music being cultural and social. Um, I gave the example of the, the Passover song, Dayenu, which has really profound spiritual, emotional, religious, and cultural context. Um, and that one gets remembered late, late, late in the game. In, contact, in contrast, this uh, in-home study that we've been doing, we're, we're purposively sampling a very diverse population. People were born in seven different countries, for example. Um, I couldn't believe how many people listened to Willie Nelson. Like, okay, that, that was on the road again. I just can't wait to get on the road again. Um, I guess Willie really has performed everywhere. And... Um, He's just an incredible live performer. So people tend to remember that. Uh, if you're talking about uh, US veterans, I also work at the VA. Um, in the World War II veterans, it would be things like over there, over there, in the light of the fight, over the, you know, the World War II songs. Um, this is not the case with our, our more recent Vietnam and Afghanistan veterans. Um, and so, yeah, so I find Take Me Out to the Ball Game shows up everywhere in the U.S. because of U.S. baseball. Mm -hmm. um, Willie Nelson shows up disproportionately. And um, the, the folk songs show up, right? And the songs that everyone knows but nobody really likes, like Happy Birthday, Right, everyone can sing it. It's not really something you're going to just sort of sing to have a good time, but everybody knows it. So sometimes that's an icebreaker. I don't think I got to 10. I think I got to just a handful. You did a great job. though. <laughs> Elvis, you know, I expected more Elvis than I'm sorry. I'm not letting you read the questions. You should read the questions and I should answer. Okay. <laughs> How about Elvis? Does he show up? A little bit. We've had some requests for blue suede shoes. Um, memory is interesting. Memory is social. You remember things in the moment. And so if you ask someone for like their full lifetime song history, you don't get it. You don't get it. You get what people are thinking of at that moment. You get the song that's triggered by the other song. So I'm expecting to see a lot of Elvis over the next two years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And uh, do any studies show gender differences in genre? And if so, what? I've wondered that for a long time. The short answer is 
no, there are no studies. And um, if there were, I would again expect it to have very strong cultural drivers. You know, there are some communities that have traditional groups of songs for women, for men, for older women, for older men, right? For women who've been through childbirth, for young girls and women who have not been through childbirth, for children and for babies. Um, and we don't have that so much in the US, sort of across the country. So um, the, the studies showing gender differences in genre come out of ethnomusicology, and they are typically studies of the genres in those communities, mm -hmm. as opposed to studies in the context of dementia. And I'm trying to get them to pay attention to cognitive impairment, but there's still kind of a big divide um, in the disciplines. Now, besides singing, what about patients being able to play instruments after long absences? Yeah. So presumably I'm cognitively intact. And I assure you, that's not how I played that piece at my senior recital. So there are case reports. Um, and when they happen, they're really lovely. Um, I had a, someone, we found a clarinet in his house and he tried to play it, but we couldn't find a reed. So we couldn't figure out how well he played it. But there are certainly lots and lots of stories of people being admitted to a nursing home and seeing the piano and just sitting down and playing. Mm -hmm. And depending on their experience, playing very well. And um, I played with a tambourine player who was not a professional tambourine player, but was a professional classical musician who she, she ran it. She owned us with that tambourine. We followed every tempo. So, so yes, but they're not big studies. What are just some simple ways to, um, I don't know, like not use your singing instrument, but other instruments in your home? Like, is there, are there practical ones for drumming or different things like the that? The whole world's an instrument. The whole <laughs> player's chest, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember I was at a concert where everybody was thumping their chest and it was just like this amazing resonance in the room. And and I I encourage people to do that for, for multiple reasons. Um, if you got a hand and you can access your chest, it's an easy way to make a noise. It's very stimulating. You get the whole body going. But no, the whole world is an instrument, right? It's your two spoons together in the kitchen. It's your cheese grater and the back of a wooden spoon that you don't mind ruining. <laughs> you know, you can you really use, the sky's the limit. And just a personal question, since I think you're an animal lover like I am, <laughs> um, has there been studies like integrating, you know, animals with music? That's a good question. You know, when Bill Thomas founded um, the culture change movement in nursing homes. He, he said that we were fighting boredom and loneliness, that nursing homes were horrible and that in order to make them better, we needed to bring in plants and children and animals. Um, I don't know about animals and music, but certainly animals are, and pet therapy is extraordinarily important. Hmm. 
Yeah, I'm just thinking of that. Uh, there was that seal that used to go around, like uh, not not a real seal, like this ten thousand dollar <laughs> seal that really like mimicked movements and would help with memory. Oh, yeah. And I wondered if they paired it with music, but um, we have another. I, I mean, I I've done that. I mean, we've done that. I'm not a music therapist. I have deep respect for music therapists. Okay. I hope Matt's not watching. <laughs> no, seriously, I love, I love, I love what's being done. It's really important. And those of us who kind of screw around with it as doctors, it gets called music medicine, and it, it's problematic. But you know, you're desperate sometimes when somebody is angry and hitting out. And uh, there was one person who could only only be bathed and taken care of in a way that was pleasant for him if if he had a little those little fake cats that purr mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and 60s folk songs um so i've seen it but i haven't seen a study felt felt experience tactile and and folk songs yeah and uh do you recommend people begin now to create their favorite playlists and share that with loved ones or maybe add it to their medical care directives <laughs> I wonder if one of my family members is on this call. <laughs> um, yes, 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 yes. This is the beauty of Spotify and, and Apple music and Pandora and all of these things, right? I don't want to, I don't want to say go for this one, but the beauty of them is that they allow you to create playlists. YouTube allows you to create, everything allows you to create a playlist and um, you can share it. If you have a family membership in these things, you can share it within the family. And certainly in our family, we're doing this. Um, but even if you can't, right? My mom made that CD for my grandma and it, it really worked. In terms of the advanced directive, my advanced directive actually contains a joke that I will, that, that, let me just say it says, none of this music, please. And everybody in the family is going to understand what I'm talking about. And they're going to go back to the stuff they know I like, but you're right. I ought to give them a playlist, right? This is what I find soothing. This is what I want to dance to. I think we should all do that. And that's most important to have a joke, um, you know, kind of like caring for yeah. your, your loved ones and your advanced directive. <laughs> but the most important part is to have a proxy decision maker whether you have an advanced directive or not, you have to have somebody who knows you well enough to make your decisions. And so speaking as a geriatrician here, just total shout out for getting durable powers of attorney for healthcare and finance. And then those are the people you talk to about the music, but first you got to give them the authority to help make the best decisions for you. Well, we have about 10 minutes left. Any lingering words of wisdom? Oh, I could talk the hind leg off a donkey. You want to give me that much play? Um, yeah, I think um, it's surprising to me how difficult it is for people to simply start asking other people what music they listen to, um, particularly healthcare professionals. You know, healthcare professionals ask you about all these embarrassing body functions, and they never ask you if you listen to music. <laughs> And um, one it's like too exposed, like not exposed in other ways, but that it's just, maybe it's just because we haven't practiced. Once I train my fellows to ask, they ask forever. One of the findings that's emerging just now 
in our current analysis is that asking care partners if they're using music in their daily caregiving routine is a powerful question to ask in the clinical setting. Because when they say no, it's like a little red alarm because the, 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 the kind of clustering of features is so tight in this really heterogeneous little group that they got to wonder if somebody is not even listening to music, what other forms of self-care self -care are not happening? What stressors are going on? Um, and we see this inside and outside dementia caregiving, that when we start to lose track of our meaningful activities, probably we're getting pretty stressed. And so certainly the pandemic has not helped with this. But in some ways, it has uh, given people greater access. The National Institute for Health has a, a huge sound health network going on now um, that is really trying to advance the science of music and health. And it, it's not an accident that the head of the NIH is a guitarist and piano player who put his home office next to the piano and says it saved his sanity. So I, I would that's the medicine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would, I would just argue that we need more music. We need more music everywhere. And I don't mean elevator music at the mall. I mean, the music that we like music in schools, giving students opportunities to dance and play. Or the um, music of nature as well. That's just in there. Yeah. And there are, there are some studies on um, professional musicians and that they, they do have some different cognitive out, outcomes. And we don't know if music is protective or, or if it's, you know, again, the people who choose to engage. Um, but there, there is some evidence there. And there's also one interesting randomized controlled trial that showed that um, regular music making, singing in a choir had some imp cognitive improvement, in fact. So... These are all things that we should kind of put together in the bucket. Um, and that's where the Sound Health Network is going to be very important. Uh, it's actually based out of here at UCSF. And that's their, their job is to try and get all of these researchers out in their little tiny worlds to come together and build a, a real evidence base, you know, the way that we have, say, in virology, right? It's amazing, actually, to be that glue. And we had uh, Dr. Barrett, who works at Dr. Lim's lab, uh, come and be our first speaker. And she also promoted the Sound Health Network. Well, she should. <laughs> it's UCSF. Julian Johnson and Charles Lim are running it, and uh, and Dr. Barrett, Karen Barrett's part of part of the Sound Health Network, and actually will be. Um, she and I are going to be involved in a journal club at the end of next month, looking at a music and dementia article. Fantastic. So exciting. There, there's a little bit of like group rah rock. Going yeah. On. And it's true interdisciplinary. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Cause she's, she's theory, music theory, cognition. Julina's neuroscience, but actually has an undergrad degree in, in music and, um, and Charles is, I mean, he's an otolaryngologist. He's an EMT. Yeah, I'm yeah, a geriatrician. I know. <laughs> but I'm not so involved in that. Um, 
I'm I'm on the sort of the end of the like the 800,000 little researchers we're trying to get to all come together. I'm one of those. They're the glue. Well, you're still forming constellations, you know, with all the little star. <laughs> so um, there's a comment by um, that says what I've heard has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your authentic voice. Oh, like that is very kind of you to say. I'm very sad that we couldn't convert this to a regular Zoom because it's it's so much more fun when we can talk. Um, may I ask, Dr. Chan, if you ever talk about music with your patients? I do all the time, actually. Um, I mean, I think we kind of go with the flow and I do a lot of psychotherapy and I think integrative medicine is about opening self-awareness. So what better way than to use like the arts and music? And I think, especially during the pandemic, um, a lot of my patients have been going more inward, you know, and I had uh, someone say, is this confinement or is this liberation? And, um, oh, that's that powerful. Yeah. And, and music does have this way of making really difficult things more tolerable that sort of metaphorical slippage that happens with mm -hmm. the arts. Um, and do, do you take care of folks who have cognitive impairment as well as folks who are cognitively intact? I, I do. Yes. I, my uh, population seems to be, I, I think I'm an old soul or someone said I'm like a old soul, something else, old millennial <laughs> thing. So um, I, I tend to resonate with the group. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think experientially, I, I feel in some ways like my research for the next five years is going to be telling people what they know from their personal and clinical lives. Um, because up until now, our knowledge has all been experiential and there's been no space in the medical journals for this sort of experiential, holistic knowledge to emerge. And now that they're encouraging ethnography, which is the, you know, the study of people and culture and being embedded in the group, um, Hopefully we're going to see more of this emerging. And maybe it's not even just a complementary therapy. It's the primary, you know, and like you said, maybe like antidepressants or medicine is the complementary therapy. Ah, mm -hmm. uh, I would love that. <laughs> I would love that. Yeah. And, and certainly in nursing homes, there, there's a really strong push to avoid psychotropic medications because what are you medicating? Is this actually an illness or is this existential pain? Is this lack of meaning? Is this lack of opportunity? And this is where music and, and lots of creative arts and, and pets and the inclusion of therapists, right? Rec therapists, music therapists, and social life, right? Musicians, family members, friends, bringing all of us together in what's sometimes called a care convoy. Mm. It sort of surrounds and I helps love that. Yeah. protect the person. I almost see it like a, a womb, you know, <laughs> for the patient to um, to grow and be nurtured. Mm -hmm. And that is not my term. Kemp came up with that. I'm just quoting. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, I, and I also want to put a shout out to Dr. Louise Aronson that's at our uh, Osher Center, who you probably know very well, um, to bridge these kind of like integrative aging and... Uh, kind of like expressive arts and humanities yes. together. Mm -hmm. And for folks who, who don't know, I, I will put in a shameless shout out for Louise's novel, History of the Present Illness and her nonfiction book, Elderhood, 
Um, read the novel if you want to laugh and cry. Read Elderhood if you want to get mad and change the world. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I think that's a great ending point and great motto to think of, you know, to that we have both, we have both sides of, you know, wanting to have that rah-rah change the world, but also like have the felt experiences and to create room for that. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. And thank you everyone for joining us. Thank you, Don and Joey for facilitating and making this happen. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.